Genesis 45, verse 5, a fitting summary of the few chapters that we'll be looking at today. Uh, The passage reads, And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. In 1973, IBM would release a product that would literally change the world. And no, it wasn't the personal computer. So what was it? Believe it or not, it was a typewriter. Now, of course, the typewriter had been around for over 100 years by that point. So this new revolutionary product wasn't merely a typewriter. Rather, it was a single feature of this typewriter. The television ad for this world-altering invention was simple and effective. It merely consisted of a close-up of a typewriter typing the following message. W-A-T-C-H space C-A-R-E-F-U-L-O-L-Y. The typo is evident. The camera then shifts perspective, zooming in on this one key that had never been seen before. It was a backwards arrow with an X in the middle, the backspace key. And with a couple of pushes of that button, the mistake had been magically undone. This revolutionized the typing industry. Up to that point, more care had to be exercised in writing because fixing corrections required either starting over on time-intensive procedures such as whiteout or just getting a new copy altogether. But now, mistakes could be fixed with the press of a button. The spirit of this magical key would be passed on to computers and laptops, and now we even use it on our cell phones. It's become a convenient feature of modern living. But we all know don't we? That life has no backspace key. It's a harrowing thought, an unavoidable reality. In fact, our personal story, our life history, is so permanent that it's like trying to type without a backspace key. It's like writing in pencil without an eraser, writing in ink without wide out every page of final draft no start overs no redos we get one shot to write our story and inevitably mistakes are made sometimes it's mere typos other times it's entire pages of copy that were just downright bad and it is in this sense that we can resonate with genesis 45 verse 5 It's the story of Joseph's brothers. We know what it is to be, as the text says, distressed or angry with ourselves over bad things done in our past. Regret, shame, guilt over sins committed or opportunities missed. These mistakes, mess-ups, missed opportunities may still even haunt us into the present. And so if you know this feeling... And you want it fixed. This story's for you. I must confess, right up front, it's lengthy. But at the same time, I can assure you that it is interesting and impactful. Herein, we have a story that can put our past in its place. Again, this is a story about putting our past in its place. 
The story is the culmination of several stories reviewed in Genesis thus far. Let me quickly catch you up. God's good world was cursed by human sin, yet he had resolved to fix it through a special lineage and nation. And God began to build this lineage and nation through Abraham, and then through his son Isaac, and then through his son Jacob, also known as Israel. And this privilege of restoring blessing to the world would continue through Israel's sons. But special detail to Israel's descendants in the previous chapters of Genesis have shown the worst of starts. The, the prospect of blessing seems nothing short of impossible. I mean, to use a modern paraphrase, it's a rather dysfunctional family, the family of Israel. One of their chief debacles being an incident where the older brothers gang up against the second youngest and sell him into slavery. Uh, that is a huge typo, if you will. A blot on the manuscript of their life that will permanently ruin the story. Or so it seems. Interestingly, the story isn't ruined. Because, as we've read in previous chapters, God blesses this young boy sold into slavery... And despite much hardship, suffering, and some supernatural enablement, he rises through the ranks of the Egyptian government, miraculously being placed in charge of the country's fa famine survival program. And just as God had predicted, seven years of plenty had come, upon which Joseph had capitalized and stocked up the nation's supplies. And just as God had predicted, seven years of famine had began to follow through which Joseph provided rescue for Egypt and the surrounding nations. And so that's the story up to this point. And it seems that all is well, at least with one of the special descendants of God's promised blessing, Joseph. But what about the rest of them? What about the others who would comprise this special nation that God had promised? What about uh, those brothers? What about Jacob himself, the father who had been estranged from his son? It is to these questions the story now turns. As the painful past of this special family will here be put in its place by God. And this will in turn ensure its glorious future. What you have here is a family full of regrets. A pile of people who want nothing more than to hit the backspace key. And they run headlong into a God who can convert their mistakes into masterpieces of blessing and grace. There is hope here in this story for all who know the sting of regret or the guilt of a past gone wrong. To receive relief from this story, prayerfully follow along as we survey its two main movements. We're going to notice a recurring pain in chapters 42 to 44, which gives way to a revealing providence in chapter 45. Recurring pain, revealing providence. We've got to start off with the pain. I mean... These are excruciating chapters. It's here that Jacob's remaining sons find themselves in a life-threatening dilemma that God will use to expose the guilt of their past. Now, you need to grasp the setting. 
a severe famine over all the earth. That is what we last saw in Genesis 41, verse 57. All the earth came to Egypt, to Joseph, to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Now, you you need to understand and uh, be careful here. Don't just contextualize famine over all the earth to mean all the economy was struggling. In our attempts to modernize, sometimes we miss the point. A severe famine means that there was no substantive rain, which meant no substantive vegetation, which meant no substantive food for humans or animals. Famine was not a matter of inconvenience, like I can't get on the Wi-Fi, or I can't eat at my favorite restaurant, or I can't bring my cooler to the beach during coronavirus. Famine was a matter of life or death. This horrendous event was unlike anything you or I have ever seen. One Egyptian text from that time period speaks of a famine when the entire upper Egypt was dying because of hunger, and I'm quoting here from the translation, with every man eating his own children. I mean, the only way to survive it was to outlast it. Time. Or to outmaneuver it, geography. But you need to remember, this famine lasted seven years, and this famine virtually covered the whole earth. And so the special family of blessing, the progenitors of the promised nation that would eventually bring blessing to the world, teeters here on the brink of destruction. And this comes across very clearly in the opening verses of the story. Look with me in your Bibles at chapter 42. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now, pause here. Jacob, the father, also known as Israel, knows the threat. Those boys are bewildered looking at one another, the text says. He knows that their only recourse is to buy grain from Egypt that we may live and not die. So he commissions them for this journey. The mission here is of life or death importance to God's special family. But don't neglect the important detail that Jacob did not send Benjamin with his brothers. Why not? It says that he feared what may happen to him. As you will recall, these older ten sons do not have a good track record with their youngest brothers on long trips. Last time this happened, the older ones came back without their younger brother Joseph, leading their father to believe that he had been killed by a wild animal. And so Benjamin's absence, though, here will be important to what will soon unfold. Don't forget it. But the story revealed that they make their way to Egypt, and naturally they must interact with none other than the acting vizier, Joseph, their long-lost brother. But what the brothers hope will be a means of provision instead becomes a multiplication of their problems. Notice what happens in verses 6 through 17. Joseph was governor over the land. 
He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. Where do you come from? He said. They said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph remembered the dreams that he dreamed of them. And he said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord, your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We're honest men. Your servants have never been spies. He said to them, no, it is the nakedness of the land that you have come to see. And they said, we, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. Behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you shall be tested. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you and let him bring your brother while you remain confined that your words may be tested whether the truth is in you or else by the life of Pharaoh surely you are spies. And he put them all together in custody for three days. What an incidental reunion. It's been at least 10 years, more likely 20 years, since that horrific incident where young Joseph was exiled by his brothers into slavery. He recognizes them, but naturally they do not recognize him. They had zero reason to expect to see him alive, to see him in Egypt, to see him as the second most powerful man in the world. Joseph's shaved head and royal regalia and foreign tongue completely concealed his true identity. And so Joseph leverages this to his advantage. Joseph knows that years of famine are still to come. And so what he does here, and you've got to follow this, is he's going to initiate a ruse by which he will be able to get his entire family down to Egypt for their complete protection from this extreme threat. But he doesn't do this directly. First, he wants to know whether his brothers have changed. He wants to know if the rest of the family, especially his brother and his father, have been safe from their murderous clutches. He has no clue what's been going on back home. He's had no communication. And after all, these are the same brothers who vindictively slaughtered an entire village back in Genesis 34. These are the same brothers who plotted to kill him in a jealous rage and eventually decided to sell him so they could profit from his demise. Joseph may provide eventually, but he wants to know exactly to whom or to what sort of people he'll be providing. And so he treats them like foreign spies. And he employs some scare tactics to, to pressure them into to bringing their younger brother back to him. He wants to know that his full-blooded brother, Benjamin, is alive and well. And he kind of pulls this uh, bad cop, good cop routine. Joseph first tells them that they will all be in prison while one can be released to retrieve his youngest brother. But then he's going to change it up. And in the name of believing in God, he's going to mention this, you'll see it in a second, shows them mercy by letting them all go back with provisions except for one. And then, once they return with the youngest, Joseph would release the imprisoned brother. 
So you're going to see the details of this arrangement in the next few verses, but I want you to notice as we read it how all this misfortune that befalls them on account of a younger brother reveals their troubled conscience regarding the past. Let's look at verses 18 to 23. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. So your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they did so. Then they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. This is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did not I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Do you see it? The mention of God and the younger brother provoke intense feelings of guilt and distress. That They see this predicament not as bad luck, but as divine retribution. I mean, ignorance for them here is anything but bliss. It is excruciating, psychological, and emotional pain. I mean, for ignoring Joseph's panic cries for help, his painful pleas for mercy, they now find themselves in similar distress. Reuben, the oldest, even labels their current misfortune as a reckoning for his blood. And though they speak in Hebrew to one another, Joseph hears every word. (laughs) And the pain of his past, the trauma of that moment, combined with the evident pain of their troubled conscience, pierces his rough demeanor to the point that he will even leave the room to cry. Look at verses 24 and 25. Then he turned away from them and wept, and he returned to them and spoke to them. And he took Simeon uh, from them and bound him before their eyes and Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain and to replace every man's money in his sack and to give them provisions for the journey. And this was done for them. And so notice what happens. Even though Joseph is feeling tender, he puts back on his tough demeanor and he imprisons Simeon before them and he sends them on their way. And interestingly, as a hidden act of kindness, he arranges to fill their sacks with grain and give them provisions for the journey. But he does something even better. He even secretly returns the money to them that they had paid for the grain. And it is this secret expression of kindness, the return of the money, that will further reveal the depth of their guilt and the extent of their troubled conscience regarding the past. You'll see in the verses to come how their intense guilt even causes them to interpret the surprise kindness shown to them as an omen of certain destruction. Look at verses 26 to 28. Then they loaded their donkeys with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. He said to his brothers, my money has been put back. Here it is at the mouth of my sack. And instead of rejoicing or instead of being happy, notice what the text says, at this their hearts failed them. And they turned trembling to one another saying, what is this that God has done to us? 
Friends, lesson to learn here. A troubled conscience can even cause us to interpret the kindness of God as the curse of God. We could think that even the good that is being done to us is just a setup for it all to be taken away. And so their ignorance of God's sovereign goodness has to this point brought them much pain. But this is not all. I mean, things are going to go from bad to worse as they have to report of this debacle to their father. So get the picture. For the mission to be accomplished, if you will, they needed to get food and they obviously needed to come back with everybody. Well, they, now they have the food, but they're missing a brother. He's enslaved. And now they've got some splaining to do, to borrow from I Love Lucy, in verses 29 to 38. And, and just notice how they try to defend themselves here in front of their, their dad. This is just classic uh, kids having to report to their father. Verse 29, when they came to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, saying, The man, the Lord of the land, spoke roughly to us and took us to be spies of the land. But we said to him, We're honest men. We have never been spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is no more. The youngest this day is with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the land, said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers with me and take grain for the famine of your household and go your way. Bring your youngest brother to me. Then I shall know that you are not spies but honest men and I will deliver your brother to you and you shall trade in the land. Now, I want to pause here and I hope you know the abject and inevitable feeling of failure. Though they return with provisions, they once again return home without one of their brothers. I mean, a total fail. The whole report up to this point, to me, kind of sounds like an extended exercise in blame shifting or excuse making. You know, it's like the kid who fails a test and says it was his teacher's fault or the team that loses the game blaming the loss on the ref's bad call. I mean, here, they're making a big deal out of this authority figure and they just couldn't help it. He just took, them, took Simeon from them. And as if returning without Simeon wasn't bad enough, and you have to either laugh or cry or, or what happens next, because I can imagine them saying, hey, we've lost our brother to an Egyptian prison, but at least we have this food. And then here's what happened. They opened their sacks collectively. Remember, they'd only opened one up to this point. And in fact, let's let the text pick it up from here, verse 35. As they emptied their sacks, behold, every man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their fathers saw their bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Uh, put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you were to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol, the grave. The brothers have failed. And even Jacob feels that everything is against him. In the face of life or death, his boys may have secured temporary provisions, but they did so at the cost of another one of their brothers. And now, they want to go back to Egypt and potentially lose another one? Jacob's not going to have it. 
the old saying, a bird in the hand is better than two in the bush. That's kind of what moderates Jacob's thoughts here. Even with Simeon still rotting away in an Egyptian jail, Jacob has currently resigned himself to his probable demise. And to him, the only hope for the promised family is to outlast this famine. Remember, those are your only options. Outlast or outmaneuver. But it's the whole world, so he tries to outlast. But such a convenient option will not be afforded him. Chapter 43 continues the series of unfortunate events, and and notice how it kicks off in verses 1 through 10. Now, the famine was very severe in the land. He can't outlast it. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was an answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. Here, desperation and and dynamic speech prevail. Interestingly, however, it is Judah, replete with his sordid past, who takes the lead on the second rescue attempt. The situation is, again, life or death, and the only recourse is to take Benjamin down with them. Reluctantly, and frankly, out of other options, Jacob relinquishes Benjamin to Judah's care. And not only will Jacob send Judah, but he's also going to send the boys with twice the amount of money they took the first time, hoping to make up for the supposed oversight. And he's going to send along a special gift basket as a bride. And... Last of all, he's going to pray for God Almighty, the powerful God who ensures the success of this special family, to send back the other brother and Benjamin. Don't miss this. Look at verses 11 through 14. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise and go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Through this little prayer, Jacob clarifies exactly what he is begging God to enable them to do. Get provisions and come back with all your brothers. 
And so with much fear and trepidation, the brothers continue their quest. And let's pick up at the text at verse 15. So the men took this present, and they took double the money with them, and Benjamin. They arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house. And they said, It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we were brought in, so that he may assault us and fall on us to make us his servants and seize our donkeys. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks and there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight. So we have brought it again with us and we have brought other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. Now, clearly, their guilty conscience continues to plague them. They're still suffering acutely from their indiscretions in the past. At a mere invitation to Joseph's house for lunch instead of the court, verse 18 says they were afraid. In fact, they interpret this harmless invitation to lunch as a plot to force them into slavery. Who would ever interpret a harmless invitation to lunch as a plot to force someone into slavery. Maybe those who've done something like that before. So, they try to explain the whole double money incident as a huge mess up. Joseph's personal assistant, however, assures them of something very important to this story. That this was by divine design. Friends, this is a precursor to the whole point. This pagan assures these brothers, the future nation of Israel, that God is not working against them in perceived misfortune, but for them. Look at your Bible again, beginning at verse 23, to see this fully. He replied, Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when they had given their donkeys fodder, they prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat bread there. And so the brothers try to relax. It seems that all will turn out well. Even Joseph's heart is warmed by this reunion. And through it, he now turns his attention to seeing how the older brothers treat their younger brother. That's what's happening next. Notice here how Joseph will arrange things to test their treatment of his beloved blood brother Benjamin. Knowing him to be the prospective object of their jealousy, just like he used to be. We'll see this in verses 26 to 34. See if you can note how Joseph sets this thing up. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. Notice that's the second time they've bowed down to him. 
And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well? The old man of whom you spoke, is he still alive? They said, Your servant, our father is well, he is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. Third times it says that. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. Then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber, and he wept there. And then he washed his face, and he came out, and controlling himself, he said, Serve the food. They served him by himself, and then by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because Egyptians could not eat with Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with them. Now, covering up this uncontrollable display of emotion, Joseph eats with them. And what I want you to see is that he enforces full Egyptian decorum. As the ancient reader would expect, Joseph ate separate from the brothers as the custom of the day dictated. This was still a formal meal. This isn't just like an informal, you know, like sandwich lunch, you know, over like the kitchen table. Everything is, is out here. This is the epitome of formal. But shockingly, what you, you need to see is that Joseph arranges for them to sit in this formal meal from oldest to youngest. <laughs> and this intentional arrangement shocks them. You see that in verse 33. And what it does, like, how, how would he know? How would he know youngest to oldest? But they don't pick up on it. And it reinforces their own cultural sense of importance. So when you arrange everyone this way, obviously Reuben being the greatest and Benjamin is the least. Yet after arranging all this, Joseph ensures that Benjamin gets five times the amount of the other brothers. <laughs> and how will they respond? Will they here once again indicate their hatred for a specially loved younger brother? This is the test. And surprisingly, they pass it with flying colors. As verse 34 concludes, even once Benjamin receives all these extra portions and care, the text ends by saying they drank and were merry with him. They were good with it. It was a meal to be remembered as they drank themselves to the point of intoxication at midday. <laughs> But this will merely be the calm before the storm because remember what Jacob prayed for them? That God Almighty would not only grant mercy before the man, which has happened here, but that they would also bring back your older brother and Benjamin. So they've got mercy before the man. They now have the older brother. And it seems that they have Benjamin. Like right now, they're going to be able to leave with heads high thinking that, all right, mission accomplished. We're doing well here. But Joseph is going to throw one more monkey wrench into their plans in chapter 44. Let's read the first five verses. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sack with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest with his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph told him. 
And as soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance up from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. Now, while the brothers sleep off their hangover, Joseph commands his personal assistants to load up their sacks with food. I mean, to load them up to the point of abundance. As formerly indicated, Joseph even has the money put back in their bags as well. Right? Remember he said, the, the steward told him, no, we're going to give you the money back. But Joseph has his assistant add one little surprise. His silver cup in the mouth of the sack of the youngest. And so, the brothers take off, confidently feeling like their mission had been a success, but before they even reach the next exit on the ancient Near Eastern interstate, they see the blue lights of the palace police in their rearview mirror, and they are forced to pull over. And as we all tend to do, they naturally wonder the equivalent of, what seems to be the problem, officer? To which the officer replies, why have you repaid evil for good? I'm going to have to bring you in for stealing the vizier's chalice, the one he uses to practice divination. You've done evil in doing this. I hope you excuse the modernization, but maybe it helps you resonate with their disappointment, their dashed hopes of a successful rescue mission. And it all deals with this cup. Historically, just so you're aware, some pagans sought to predict the future through mystical practices and superstitious charms. Uh, some of these techniques were called hydromancy, when you pour water into oil, or uh, oleomancy, or oil into water, or oniomancy, wine into another liquid. And this mixture of these different liquids, supposedly the, the surface patterns would, would form something that you could see that could help one determine the mind of the gods with reference to the future, or to the source of the trouble, or the truth or guilt or innocence of someone. So referring to the wine goblet as a divining cup here contributes to the ruse of Jacob being this mythically powerful man. He's, he's wanting to scare them. In other words, what you see here is that this is a huge accusation. It wasn't just, oh, you accidentally you know, took a fork. <laughs> this is the equivalent of stealing the president's cell phone. Once again, it seems that they're in a world of trouble. But we've got to wonder here, like, what is Joseph up to? Is he just trying to torture them? Is this some form of psychological warfare? We do well to remember that Joseph wants his family in Egypt to protect them from the famine, and he wants to know that the older brothers are properly caring for their younger brother and their father. I mean, remember, formerly they showed little regard for their father and youngest brother, the favorite son. Now, Joseph wants to know for sure how they will regard their father and youngest brother. And so Joseph here is setting up, listen to this, a virtual replay of the horrific events that took place some 20 years earlier. By setting up the youngest brother for a lifetime of slavery, Joseph tests the love and regard of the older brothers for Benjamin and for their father. So the question is, Will they pass the test? Let's see it, verses 6 through 13. For, 
when he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money that we found in the mouth of our sacks we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. And he said, let it be as you say. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest. And the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city. Did you notice that last verse, verse 13? They don't just tell Benjamin, oh, stinks to be you. We better get this grain on back to our families. Notice that they all tear their clothes as a sign of mourning. Every man loads up his donkey and returns to the city. It seems they may pass this test after all. It seems that the guilt of the past has somehow changed these brothers. It's made them different. But the brothers not only show remorse and solitude in returning back to the city with Benjamin, but with Judah at the lead, the brothers will not only pass Joseph's test, but they will ace it. Look at verses 14 to 16. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, they fell before him to the ground. And Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can indeed practice divination? Now, Paul's here. Once again, Joseph intimidates them with his perceived power. He doesn't actually practice divination. We already know that his success came directly from God. Let's keep reading verse 16. And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. In the face of wrongful accusation, Judah here steps up and admits on behalf of all the brothers that they deserve whatever penalty has befallen them. Through the entire incident, they have been acutely aware of their own guilt for their previous sin against Joseph. Though they know that they or Benjamin didn't steal the chalice, they are all willing to become slaves. They're guilty, and they know it. Not for theft, but for selling their brother in slavery. And so they resign themselves to what seems to be the unavoidable retributive hand of God. In effect, he says, don't just take Benjamin as a slave. If you take him... Take us all. Now, friends, that indeed is brotherly love. But Joseph's going to test them even further. He's going to pressure them one more time to abandon their youngest brother, telling them that that's not an option. Their only option is to go at home in peace while he retains the younger brother. Uh, Look at his, his counter in verse 17. But he said, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. So what else can they do? They've tried. 
They're out of options. They would just have to say that they tried their best. But Judah once again will not let this rest. And what follows here is his impassioned plea for Benjamin's release. And what amounts to be the longest speech in the entire book of Genesis. Judah will muster one final attempt to rescue his younger brother. And despite previous failures, try to secure the future good of the family line. And you've got to catch the irony. The guy making this stand for the youngest brother is the very same one who 20 years previous suggested they sell him into slavery. You could see that in Genesis 37, verses 26 and 27. But I want you to listen to this speech. Listen to it through Joseph's eager ears. It begins at verse 18, and see if you can catch the emphasis. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. And we said to my Lord, listen to this, he's going to repeat this several times, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to his servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord, and when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our younger brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me and harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Notice that's twice that he's connected the good of the father with the fortunes of the brother. Verse 30, now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, the boy is not with us, then as his life is bound up with the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. He mentions it again. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame for my father all my life. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant of my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? For I, I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Do you notice what Judah's doing here? I mean, 14 times he's going to mention his father, and he's going to keep repeating his brother, and he's going to keep saying, like, what I'm concerned about here is my father, and I'm concerned about this boy who's the favorite. And think of that. He acknowledges that Benjamin's the favorite, and he's okay with it. He just wants his brother to continue to be able to make it back for the sake of his father. There's so much familial love here. And so, Judah, this one who first proposed selling Joseph into slavery, offers himself to be a slave in the younger brother's place. And so the brothers are now at the brink of pain. 
They've resigned themselves to God's bitter providence on account of their past sins. And through all the pain, all the confusion, all the misunderstanding, all the pressure, all the regret, all the guilt. They didn't know it, but God was actually working not against them, but for them. How? You're probably asking, Justin, are you reading the same story we are? Because it doesn't seem like there's any way for them to win. It seems like God is pretty determined to let them have it for their previous sin. But such an interpretation would be a mistake. If that's what you're seeing in this story up to this point, you're judging the Lord by your own senses. You're displaying your painful ignorance of the way that He works. Don't believe me? Just keep reading. Because it's at this very point that this long story moves to its dramatic conclusion. And the story shifts its focus from their recurring pain to God's revealing providence. Let's read verses 1 through 15. And I want you to catch the emphasis of this story straight from the words of Scripture itself. Then, as Judah finishes up his speech, Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I am your brother Joseph whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine had been in the land these two years and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, and your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household, and all that you have, do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. Do you see it now? Do you see what Joseph learned to see so long before? Do you see what God wants you to see amid the pain of deep regret? Amid the pressures of your previous sin? Amid the frustration of foolish decisions in years gone by? God converts our mistakes into masterpieces. Our problems into provisions. 
The text states it three times. Against the backdrop of all their personal guilt and regret. Though you sold me here, God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 5. God sent me before you to preserve you as a remnant on earth. Verse 8. It wasn't merely God's anger, but on a more personal level, it was a matter of God's smiling face upon them. He was keeping His promises despite their sin. Don't miss it. God converts our mistakes into masterpieces, our problems into provisions. He can even take human sin and use it as a means for our salvation. Think about that for a moment. Let it shock you. I'm going to say it again. He can even take human sin and use it as a means for our salvation. That should shock you. Mistakes, you would say, are one thing. But sin? Is God really determined to, so determined to save that even human sin can become instrumental in our salvation? Was this not what the Lord Jesus Christ taught in the upper room after Judas Iscariot had left the room to initiate the treacherous events that would eventually lead to his crucifixion? You remember Luke 22, 22? The Son of Man goes as it has been determined by God, but woe to the one by whom he is betrayed. Notice that. God's determination, human sin. You know, looking back on those events that led to Jesus' substitutionary death for sinners like me and you, the Apostle Peter would shortly thereafter preach in the book of Acts, and this is that famous phrase, therefore let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Did you catch it? God has made him Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Do you see how, how God takes the things that that we do, the, those sinful actions that we display, those expressions of rebellion against Him, and He can still even turn that into good for us? As of last week, I was supposed to have graduated after 20-plus years of formal educational experience. Graduation's been postponed, but it was supposed to be the acquisition of a terminal degree. That means it is at the end. Now, as I reflect over 20-plus years of formal academic experience, I can easily tell you right now what my Achilles heel is on an intellectual level, and that is memorization. I stink at memorizing things. I despise memorizing things, but I know it's important for me. And so, obviously, the, the number one thing that I want to memorize and need to memorize is the Bible. And if you ever want to make me feel guilty, just ask me how my Bible memory is going. But I'm telling you all that to say that I don't memorize things that often, and if I do memorize anything, it's the Bible. But occasionally, I memorize things outside the Bible because they're so significant and meaningful to me. And one of those in the last year that I've been committing to memory, and I may not even get it right here today, is the poem by William Cooper entitled Light Shining Out of Darkness. 
You'd probably know it by its first stanza. God moves in a mysterious way, his wonders to perform. Um, it, it's a, just this great poem about the way that God works and the way that we misunderstand it and how he's always accomplishing his sovereign and good purposes. You know, there's this one stanza that's particularly stood out to me in recent days, even as I think about all the stuff that goes on with corona, as I reflect upon even the, the mistakes of my life, present, past, where Cooper urges us, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind each frowning providence, he hides his smiling face. You see the connection? We most clearly see the connection between the feebly sensed frowning providence and the appropriate by faith perspective of God's smiling face and the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ. God even took the evil, the horror of the cross to accomplish the salvation of mankind. You should walk away knowing that no matter what has happened, he is still determined to do good to the special people that he has chosen. As Paul puts it, and we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. How do you know if you're called? How do you know if this good promise is for you? That God is even taking your past and making it into something good for the future. It is only those who love God. Those who are being conformed into the image of His Son. In other words, do you, if you want to know if this promise is for you, do you love Jesus? And is this love inevitably making you more like Him? In the case of the text, the called are the children of Israel. God's preservation and salvation didn't come on account of their goodness. Far from it. But it came from His grace. So how do you know if God's face is smiling upon you? How do you know if these promises for providential preservation personally apply to you do you love him do you trust him are you looking to jesus christ alone for salvation have you forsaken the lesser loves of self and society and sex and stuff for an ultimate love of your sovereign savior and so instead of fearing retribution for sins gone by we can now anticipate rescue for generations to come, just like the children of Israel did. No matter how bad things seem, no matter how much they blow it, God is determined to save His chosen people. And this is confirmed in the final verses of the chapter. You can finish reading out the story on your own to see how things turn out for God's chosen, one, chosen ones, but I'll summarize it for you in verses 16 through 28. The boys make it all up together to the land of Israel. And they're able to provide for their father at Joseph's behest. And then they ultimately will come down to Egypt to benefit from his ongoing protection and provision. Mission accomplished. Provision, protection for the special family of God. Despite their failures and faithfulness, faithlessness, God kept his promise to save. You know, friends, a simple reflection upon this epic account leaves us with a couple of points of personal application. And I'm out of time, but I trust that you'll spend some time thinking about these. First, 
I would encourage you to be very careful amid frowning providence. When life hurts, especially when you think it hurts because of your own horrible decisions, you need to resist the urge, as the hymn would say, to judge the Lord by feeble sense. Friends, we put ourselves in so much torture and so much pain when we perceive every difficult thing that happens to us as a result of something in the past, as if God is always punishing us. That is a horrible way to live. Though God had determined to do them good and make them a nation, they subsisted under a conscience-condemning life of their own choosing, and we must resist the same mistake. Dear brother or sister in Christ, if you are indeed in Christ, there is now therefore no condemnation. Sure, there will be bad things that happen. You may have sinned greatly and repeatedly, but the price for said sins has already been paid. That's why I love when we sing here at our church, in Christ alone, there's that line, says, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. There's no fear. We can lean into the bad things, not as some type of retribution from the past, but an opportunity for the future. So we forsake our sin, we trust in Him. Bad may happen, evil may come, but for the end, you need to know that God has ensured your eternal safety. Can I ask you, what frowning providences of the day or the week or the year or the life stage that you're in, do you need to be trusting that God is still working for your future preservation? What perceived expressions of divine anger do you you need to just leave at the foot of the cross? So you need to be careful in frowning providence. Don't unnecessarily torture yourself. And then second, not only be careful, but you need to be contemplative. You need to contemplate God's smiling face. Don't just look for the darkness, but hold on for God's higher and better purposes. See, friends, we need a better functional understanding of the character of God. He is both providential and protective. He is sovereign and good. Some of us focus on God's sovereignty to the neglect of His goodness. Some focus on His goodness to the neglect of His sovereignty, and yet those two things work together perfectly. We can bring the two together. He is sovereign and good. And when we know that he is both provider and protector, we can confidently undertake our endeavors. No job, no problem. Bad economy, better days are coming. Broken body, nothing will separate me from the love of God. We can understand that he's got something good in store. When we understand that God is both sovereign and good, we can move on from a troubled past. We can feel free to bury those skeletons in the closet. Maybe it was an abortion, adultery, divorce, or drugs. Those things that stick with you and and that you can never fully erase from your mind, or so it seems. Friends, assure yourselves the price is paid, and now whatever consequences you feel will only contribute to God's grand goal of salvation. And if not for you, for someone else. You could tell others of the blessing of being rescued by Christ. And remember... How said sins could have shattered your own damning sense of personal goodness. Sometimes that may be the reason for sin. To drive us to our need for His grace. But God's using it all. And so we hold out for a remedied future. At the same time, when we see that God is sovereign and good, we look ahead to the future. And we know that it may be bad now, but the best is yet to come. God's greatest rescue isn't experienced in this life, and that is okay So, 
Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. Let's pray. Father, You are good, gracious, strong, sovereign, and that, Lord, gives us comfort despite our condemned consciences, despite, Lord, our desire to erase some of our past, Lord, you can redeem it all for our ultimate protection. And so, Lord, give hope to those who are in Christ and bring to Christ those who need hope. Or work in our hearts this week. May, may we see, Lord, that even Lord, our horrendous pasts can be redeem for a glorious future, all because of your sovereign goodness, care, protection. Lord, you alone, indeed, are our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.